Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that I created a new fun little resource for you. If you've been here before, you know that I love creating stuff in Canva and I also love reading and listening to books. And what I created is my ultimate guide to my top four books related to creativity and healing that I wish I would have read in grad school. So I called it the Innovative Therapist Book Guide. It's totally free. It's going to guide you through my top four books. I bet maybe one you'll be expecting, but I bet some of the other ones you'll be pretty surprised about. So uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what your guesses were and what you ended up thinking of my top four books that I'd recommend you read. If you want to think outside the box, think innovatively about human relationships and how we can heal ourselves and heal the world. So grab it for free at drhondorp.com forward slash books. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash books. And I can't wait to hear what you think. All right, let's dive into the episode. Hi, this is Dr. Sean Hondorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert. And this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everybody, welcome back and get ready for a really great episode packed with actionable to me, fascinating information. Gut health is something that I've been really interested in for a long time, but if you're anything like me, it can feel confusing at times, but I was so lucky to be able to sit down and talk to Dr. Heather Finley, who has a PhD in clinical nutrition. I mean, first of all, Heather really just has clearly a wealth of knowledge, but also a very calming presence, and I just left this conversation feeling hopeful and inspired to get this information out to the world as soon as possible. She is doing great work. So we are going to talk about all things gut health. Um, We're going to talk about a little bit about the history of gut health, how long we've known about it and, and how important it is. And it's interesting. It's relatively newer. So if you're listening to this and you're learning about these topics, you're really on the cutting edge of helping people feel great in their body. We're going to talk about why gut health matters. We're going to talk about some common signs and symptoms of imbalance of the gut or gut dysbiosis, you can also say. 
And, and very importantly, we're going to talk about if you struggle with disordered eating or you support clients who struggle with chronic dieting, restrictive thinking, or restrictive behavior, we're going to really break it down how that is impacting your gut health and what you need to understand about the role of restriction in disordered eating from a couple of different pathways. So it's really, I think, going to be helpful to you. So make sure you stay for that part. We're going to also talk about how weight loss surgery or weight loss medications like these GLP-1 agonist, um, Ozempic, Wagovi, have the potential to impact our gut health and what to consider if you're considering some of these options and also what to do if you've used them in the past or you've had weight loss surgery. So stay tuned for that. I get in a question about food sensitivity because that's relevant to me and my family lately. We also cover how we can focus on our gut health without being too rigid, too obsessive, um, about creating the perfect gut. And then at the end, we talk about just some simple options that you can start doing today to improve your gut health. And while some of this can feel and and can be complicated, there's also a lot of hope in the message and there's a lot of basics that we jump past when we get too fixated on foods, taking foods out. So I think you're going to leave this conversation feeling similar to I did, which is hopeful, inspired to take control of your health in this really empowered way. And I think it's just yet another reminder to me about how traditional systems, traditional medical settings, they just aren't set up to address root cause in the way that will really benefit you. So learning this information is going to serve you and any clients you serve very well. So I'm so glad you're here. Let's settle in and get started. Also, if you are a therapist, dietitian, or helping professional and you work with people with disordered eating or who are struggling with eating weight concerns, uh, I have a free tool for you that I had way too much fun developing. So I, I developed this after a workshop we did recently. And um, to be honest, I don't exactly know how many people listen to this podcast that are professionals versus individuals. So uh, I'll be excited to, if you are a professional listening to this podcast, feel free to shoot me an email or say hello. Um, but if you're someone who you've been working with a client and maybe a client says something like, I really like intuitive eating, but I ultimately really want to lose weight, or in your opinion, they just, they have a hard time not focusing on weight loss and you notice it kind of gets in the way of them doing what they want to do or getting in touch with their body. And as a professional, you're not necessarily sure the best ways to guide them because maybe you understand why they want to lose weight, but you're also, um, you want the best for them and you want them to build up their own self-trust, but you're not sure what to do. You might empathize with them. You might tell them the science about dieting and weight loss and um, trying to convince them to not to diet. But ultimately, you might feel a little bit stuck. So how can you help them explore what's right for them without imposing your own agenda, which tends to backfire. So I created this free step-by-step -step guide to walk you through my number one favorite exercise. This is based on internal family systems theory, my favorite thing. Um, and it helps you help your clients navigate this nuanced dynamic with the different parts of them that still want to lose weight. So as a professional, it's my favorite way to help clients build trust while also taking the pressure off of me as a professional to know the exact right advice to give 
more say. So it's a really great tool. It's a win-win. You can grab it for free and exactly how to do it at drhondorp.com forward slash parts, P-A-R-T-S. So grab it for free today at drhondorp.com forward slash parts. And if you use it with a client, make sure you email me and let me know. All right. And just as a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. If you need a professional to guide you, please, please get one. All right, everyone, let's dive in. All right. Welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I am very, very excited for our guest today. I've been researching and listening to her podcast for a handful of months now and really, um, really love the work that she's doing. So we have Dr. Heather Finley here today to talk all things gut health as it relates to, uh, yeah, topics that are really important to, to many of us, but especially we're going to be touching on a lot of how it applies for disordered eating, disordered relationships with food, and uh, just overall health. So welcome, Dr. Finley. So excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here as well. Awesome. So we're going to just start as we often do and hear a little bit about your story and how you came to doing this work. Okay. Well, I always tell people that the reason that I'm interested in gut health is because I was born constipated and that sounds really sad and discouraging, but it's really not because, you know, through this 20 year long journey of constipation, I really learned a lot and now I get to help other people with the same issues that I had. And so my journey was long. Like I said, I was the typical, probably as you've heard with many of your clients, like I, you know, had gone to doctor after doctor, I'm constipated. What do I do? Just take Miralax. You're fine. There's nothing wrong. You know, I had colonoscopies. I had all the tests and nothing was wrong which is great, right? Like there was nothing seriously wrong, but I'm like, why am I so bloated that I can't button my pants at the end of the day? Why am I going like days, sometimes weeks without a bowel movement? This really can't be normal. And so I went on to study nutrition in college for two reasons. Number one, to understand the gut and to understand why I was so constipated. And number two, because I was a swimmer. And so I was very interested in sports nutrition. And so honestly, my intent of going to school and studying nutrition was to become a sports dietitian. I was like, I'm going to work for like the Texas Rangers or like a football team or something. Like, I feel like so many dietitians have that dream. After I graduated school, I just honestly kind of had this imposter syndrome feeling of, I think I made a huge mistake. I just spent four years studying nutrition and I still don't even know how to help myself. So how am I supposed to help other people if I literally feel worse than I ever have? And so started my first job as a dietitian, you know, the typical route went and had a clinical job and honestly cried on the way to work every single day, partially because I was so miserable with my gut issues, but also just because I didn't feel like I was making an impact and it just was not fulfilling. But I'm really grateful for that job now because honestly, it propelled me to learn more about what else can I do? Because I had so many thoughts of maybe I should just change careers or do something else. And it sent me down this path of functional nutrition and functional medicine. And 
I just had so many light bulb moments along the way of why were we not taught this in school? And also why are we not taught this in just general health class, you know, in high school and in grade school, just how everything that we do impacts our body. And we often want to blame food for every single problem that we have, but what about our sleep? What about our stress? What about the way that we eat? It was just, it was a much more holistic picture. And at least in my perspective and the way that I approach it with clients, it gave me a lot more hope and a lot more freedom to be like, okay, maybe it's not the food. Maybe it's the food that I'm not eating. That's causing me to be bloated. I spent so many years feeling so scared of food and honestly going down the functional medicine route helped me to realize it's not the food. It's something in my gut and the other lifestyle factors that are affecting my constipation. And so when I got my doctorate and I always say, I went and got my doctorate to figure out my constipation so that you didn't have to, I don't, I truly believe that no one should have to get a doctorate to figure out their constipation, but that's how yeah. desperate I was to feel better. And so I love when that I you said that just because <laughs> I was like, that was one of the things I think I said to you. I'm like, I love that there's more women and, and men too, that are more open with just like, I got my doctorate, not well, probably a lot to heal my own relationship with food. And I think it's like, we shouldn't have to do that. And yet, I, so anyways, sorry, to interrupt, yeah, but I just love that you said that because it's just real, you know, and we're two out of many, you know, there's so many people right. that aren't getting the answers that they want. And honestly, that's what I love about you know, entrepreneurship is that we get to pave our own path and we get to help people in a way that they're not being helped. And so, you know, more on that later, but mm -hmm. yeah, I, I went in, got this doctorate and I had so many light bulb moments along the way. And that's when I really started to learn about the gut, about the gut brain connection, about all the different steps of digestion. And you know, in that process kind of developed my three-step process for actually addressing digestive issues. And as a result of that, you know, started my program, which is called the gut together program. Um, and now I mentor other dietitians and gut health as well. So that's a very summarized version, but that's kind of how I got where I am now and doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think, like you said, it's entrepreneurship allows us opportunity for innovation and and just that combination of like real people's stories. And so many of us do go to mm -hmm. formal education. We're like, hmm, this is not allowing me to maybe help myself. And it's definitely not allowing me to help people in the way that I had wanted to. So yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. For sharing all of that. And I'd, I'd love to start with just like our understanding of the importance of gut health to me feels new ish. Like I feel like I've been somewhat aware and kind of semi obsessed with gut health here and there in my life for like a decade or so. But what do you think? Is it new? Like when did we realize, start realizing that this was so important for people's health? It was about 2010-ish, 2015-ish is really when we finally started to understand the gut-brain connection and that there's like, we always knew, yeah, there's bacteria in the gut and there's bacteria on our body and there's fungus and yeast and all these things. But I think then is when we really started to realize maybe these little bacteria actually have a much bigger impact on our overall health than we mm -hmm. thought. And so yeah. that's really when 
the research started taking off. So to be Mm -hmm. honest, like this is a decently new science, you know, we're still learning new stuff every single day about specifically probiotics and prebiotics and the gut brain connection. And now how the gut is connected to literally everything, you know, it's, it's in a very emerging newer science. That's, that's really interesting. And actually I'm like, Oh, it makes me feel kind of good. I was sort of aware early on, but because so much of science, a lot of what I've done is like, Oh, we've known this for decades. And there's this like translation delay. So you're on the cutting edge and people listening to this are therefore on the cutting edge too. So that's pretty cool. So how important is our gut health? Why should people care about it? It's important because it affects everything. Your gut is really the central hub for so many things in your body, your mood, your hormones, your energy. I mean, really if like to put it very, very simply, your gut is where you digest and absorb food. So if you can't digest and absorb food, well, you will become deficient in minerals in vitamins, and you're not going to get the most benefit from the food that you're eating. If your body can't process it, your gut is also where we house two to five pounds of bacteria, which is pretty crazy when you think about it that we have that much bacteria in our gut, but these bacteria have a huge say in mental health specifically and other things as well. But there's actually more messages going from your gut to your brain than there are from your brain to your gut. And you just think about everyone's probably had an experience where they've had, you know, this gut wrenching reaction, right? You're nervous. You go running to the bathroom, you're scared, your stomach hurts think about how strong that reaction is. And if that is a less strong reaction than from your gut to your brain, think about on a daily basis, how your gut bacteria are sending messages up to your brain, telling it essentially what to do, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. It feels like the more you dig into it, almost everything is related to it, right? Like it's, it's hard to find like I don't know, skin issues. And like, there's just, that's one because it's actively dealing with some dry skin issues, but it's Mm -hmm. like, there's, it's hard to find a thing for which it doesn't matter. And it is, it's fascinating. The, I've also been very fascinated with like the mind body connection for a long time, but this is, I think this newer research is helping us to understand why like, I don't know, a study I used to talk about, I still talk about from 2007 of like, the diet mentality influences things like hormones and things like that. This is helping us to understand the why behind some of this research that shows us like mindset and our mentality influences things. So Mm -hmm. fascinating. It's so fascinating. And, and like you said, I mean, it's hard to not, there's, there's nothing that's not related. So there's really nothing works in isolation in the body. It's all connected. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my next question is what are some signs of dysbiosis? And obviously there could be a lot, but what are some of maybe the big major players that people might not realize are sign of dysbiosis or imbalance in the gut? Yeah. So if you're, if dysbiosis is a new term for you, you haven't heard of this before. I was, I was referring to earlier, you have pounds of bacteria in your, in your body, some good, some not so good. And there's no perfect 
blend of bacteria. That's the other crazy thing about the gut is your gut is as unique as a fingerprint. And so we're not necessarily trying to make everybody's gut look the same. That being said, we do know that there are keystone strain bacteria that are really beneficial. There some of these bacteria include bifidobacteria, acromantia, fecalobacterium. These are some of the top three strains of bacteria that, you know, when you're looking at someone's gut, you want to see a large amount of those. So when someone has dysbiosis, it could mean that they have too many bad bacteria, or it could also just mean that they don't have enough good bacteria and specific to eating disorders. What I typically see and what the research shows is they typically, the pattern is too few good bacteria. And the reason that this happens is from restricted eating. So whether that's only eating a limited number of foods, not eating enough foods that have prebiotic fiber, which is the fuel source for these bacteria under eating for a long period of time, there's a lots of, there's lots of things that can contribute. So one of the signs of dysbiosis can be intolerance to carbohydrates, specifically fibers. If you eat fiber and you're like, oh my gosh, my stomach hurts. I'm, you know, crippled over in pain. That can be a sign that maybe you don't have the bacteria to actually digest those fibers. Cause that's the cool part is the bacteria in our gut actually help us to digest those fibers. We can't digest them as humans. So that's one sign that you may look for is like just intolerances to lots of higher fiber foods. Um, some other things that you may, that may lend itself towards dysbiosis would be bloating, constipation, diarrhea, skin issues, like you said, mood issues, even rashes. Those can definitely be indicative of dysbiosis. So it's, it can be pretty vague, right? Like all these symptoms can mean dysbiosis and they also can mean many other things, but one of kind of the keystone signs is that intolerance to a wide variety of fibrous foods. Yeah. And the one I'll add, which is a complicated one, but like cravings would be pretty relevant to people listening or to people that are professional listening that one's really interesting too, mm-hmm. but those are like people that feel we talk a lot about the concept of food addiction on this podcast. And it's a complicated one from a professional standpoint, but it, anyway, I just want to throw that one on the list too, right? Yeah. Your gut bacteria do influence what you crave metabolism. I know you wanted to talk about GLP one and all of that. And mm-hmm. so yes, your gut bacteria have a huge say in even what sounds good to you, which is pretty crazy. And the cool part too, is your gut changes. Even after a meal, your, the composition of your gut bacteria changes, which hopefully is really empowering for the listeners to know, like you have the power to change your gut and it doesn't have to take a long amount of time. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that is a very important message to highlight that you kind of said, like you've been dealing with this for so long and you talk a lot about how much better you're feeling now. Right. And it's, it can be empowering because it can be, I think, stressful for, for, and I've been in that position too, where it's like, ah, this is bad. I'm, I have signs that this is bad. And so, yeah, there's a lot of hope in that message, I think for sure. Totally. Yes. Um, so you kind of touched on this, but many of the listeners are either people that have struggled with chronic dieting, disordered eating, binge eating, or professionals who work with folks in those categories. Um, so why isn't, gut health important for them. 
Yeah, it's so important. And honestly, it could be literally a whole six month course just on this. But as I mentioned earlier, your gut influences your brain. And so when we're talking about mental health and like the correlation there between eating disorders and chronic dieting, your gut bacteria have an influence on your mood. You produce neurotransmitters like serotonin in your gut. And so when your gut is not healthy, um, or you don't have the right balance of bacteria, it will influence your serotonin production. There's also something that our gut produces called short chain fatty acids and short chain fatty acids are essentially the byproduct of fermentation in the gut. So going back to this concept of restricting carbohydrates and restricting fiber, which is again, kind of like a, that's this I'm painting with broad strokes, of course, but this is something that we tend to see in the disordered eating population is restricting sure. carbohydrates, you know, from the diet or, you know, only eating a few when you don't eat fiber to feed your gut bacteria, you don't produce short chain fatty acids. So these probiotic bacteria that I was talking about, those two to five pounds of bacteria, they're just like us. They need food to survive. And when they're not fed, they can't pay us back by producing short chain fatty acids like butyrate, acetate, propionate. The benefit of short chain fatty acids is that they're anti-inflammatory to the gut they're anti-inflammatory to the brain and to the body, and they have a huge say in mood and mental health. And so that process alone is a big one when we're looking at chronic dieting, mood, eating disorders. So we're looking at overall diversity. That's the goal. We want a diversity of bacteria in our gut. And the way that we get that is by eating a diverse amount of foods. And then from that diversity, we want to promote short chain fatty acid production. Yeah, I love how you broke that down because I think that's essential. And I work a lot with like disordered eating now and a lot of folks that I work with have been very, well, we're all exposed to the weight loss world and diet culture, but a lot of them have been in, let's say, and I know we're going to touch on this, but like bariatric surgery clinics where carb phobia is a real thing <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, carb phobia is a thing outside of surgery clinics too, but they're, they get this idea that like, carbs equal weight gain, but can be perpetuating this cycle internally that can make them not only their mood worse, but potentially lead to more dysbiosis and more difficulties with things like metabolism and lots of different functions in the body that are essential for breaking down their food. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, very much appreciate you breaking that down. Yeah, it's absolutely. To fight carb phobia because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's everywhere. And I know you touched on this a little bit too, but can you touch on the role of this restrictive mindset on gut health and how that can influence? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest oh, faux pas or whatever you want to call it in the gut health world is you know, someone has constipation or bloating and they Google like what to do. And they immediately are faced with like four different elimination diets that all conflict each other. And by the time they combine those together, they're like, okay, I guess I can eat five foods. I literally have this conversation multiple times a week with potential clients for our program. I mean, I literally had this conversation yesterday with someone and she's like, I, you know, I Googled like what to eat for SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And I was faced with the low FODMAP diet, the biphasic diet, 
low carb diet, anti-candida diet. And she's like, so I, I printed out all the lists and combine them. And I'm like, nothing is the same on these lists. So I've been eating like five things. I feel worse than I ever have. And, but I'm also really scared to actually add foods back in. And this is the story that we hear over and over again. And it's hard that mindset shift of like, maybe the reason I feel so bad is because I'm missing things that my gut needs. But when you print out lists or you're, even if your doctor hands you a list, I mean, the common story we also hear is I went to my doctor, they told me I have, you know, IBS or SIBO or whatever it might be. They gave me the low FODMAP diet handout and I was sent on my merry way. And, you know, low FODMAP can be helpful for symptom alleviation, but it's not a long-term solution. And so what happens is people stay on low FODMAP forever. And then they're even worse than they were before because they've restricted all the prebiotic fiber from their diet, which kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. And so, yeah, the thing in the gut health world is people very much misunderstand that gut health is so much more about what can we add to enhance your microbiome versus what do we need to cut out? We're so quick to be like, it's the gluten, it's the dairy, it's the nightshades, whatever, instead of like, huh, maybe you are not getting enough prebiotic fiber in your diet. Let's look at how we can add some in, or let's look at how we can balance your blood sugar a little bit better. Um, you know, maybe you're not getting enough essential fatty acids. Let's add those in. And so it's really helpful when you can have that mindset shift to go from this restrictive, what I can't eat to what I get to, to eat, to support my gut microbiome. Yeah. You can see how that would create so many, so much anxiety, so much stress, so much food fear, which just furthers that cycle. And, and beyond that, I think too, even if it's people that, that are probably listening, have people that they've worked with or themselves have been told like your body is bad and therefore you need to shrink it. And the stress mm -hmm. of that is probably furthering symptoms, probably furthering stress and uh, making all these things harder because I'm also gathering more restricting things like carbohydrates, for example, that's going to make people more stressed. And when people are more stressed, at least many of the people that I work with, restrictive eating has been a way to feel in control and feel empowered. And we, we talk a lot about protective parts, like when we're more stressed and feeling more vulnerable, we're going to go to that even more. So we just see it makes a lot of sense how this vicious cycle has played out for people. Well, and I mean, not even to mention the effect that stress has on the gut, you know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, so much we focus on what we're eating, but we don't focus on how and so many of us eat through lunch or that we work through lunch, you know, sit in front of the TV and it doesn't have to be perfect all the time. Certainly I've eaten meals in front of the TV within the last 30 days, but most of our meals, we want to be at a table trying to take a couple deep breaths before we eat to set the stage and like, let your system know, Hey, we're not running away from a tiger right now. There is no threat. This food is not a threat to my digestive tract. This food is going to nourish me. And so I'm going to take a couple deep breaths. I'm going to relax and I'm going to allow the process of digestion to start because if you never start the process of digestion by actually just smelling your food or taking a couple deep breaths, 
your body thinks it's still being chased by a tiger. If you're coming straight from a stressful meeting or off of a phone call or your kids are going nuts or, or whatever it is, we live in a culture that doesn't necessarily you know, lend itself well to taking a lunch break um, or taking time to eat a meal. And one of the best ways that you can improve your digestion is literally just taking time to eat a meal and chew it well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's this under, under focused on areas that you touched on stress, sleep. And the one I usually add into is social relationships of like those pieces are just so under focused. And I think it's, I could be wrong, but I think it's a product of diet culture because there's so much money to be made and like, here's the plan, here's the plan. And so it's a lot of it's the money and how it's been drilled into our minds, but it's also people just like wanting to, it feels more tangible. I think to, if I can control my food versus controlling stress can feel a little bit less tangible, but yeah. I also think we tend to, yeah, like we want the concrete thing, right? Like sure, here's the list of the foods that you don't eat, right? Versus, you know what? I think the reason that you're, you're bloated after you're eating is because you're stressed while you're eating. So let's try to get into a rest and digest. Let's smell your food. One of the tools we give our clients is hum happy birthday twice. You know, let's mm-hmm. do something to stimulate digestion. That's way less sexy than like, <laughs> here's the list of the foods that you can't eat. So I, it makes sense. But right. you know, in reality, <laughs> the humming happy birthday is actually a lot more simple and more effective. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good tool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I I would like to ask a little bit about gut health. I guess these are two separate, but possibly related questions. What do we know about gut health and things like weight loss surgery and, or the newer weight loss meds like GLP one meds? Um, you can start wherever you want with that. Yeah. So interestingly enough, that first job I had at a clinical hospital, I did work in the bariatric clinic um, on occasion. It wasn't like my full-time role, but occasionally I'd work there. And so I learned quite a bit about that world. Obviously that was a long time ago, but one of the biggest things that uh, we see and we've seen with some of our clients is with weight loss surgery, you know, if, especially if you're getting something like a bypass or a sleeve that is going to affect the digestive juices that are secreted that are needed for Mm -hmm. digestion. As I've said before, the interesting part about digestion is that it doesn't work in isolation. So every piece of your digestion is connected. Your salivation stimulates your stomach acid, your stomach acid stimulates your pancreatic enzymes, which stimulates your bile flow. And so it's a top-down process. So with weight loss surgery, if any part of that process was messed with, um, or altered, then it's going to affect everything downstream. So one of the things that we see kind of as a result of weight loss surgery is an increase in digestive symptoms, typically because of lack of stomach acid. We see a lot of mineral deficiencies, intolerance to foods and proteins, and it all makes sense because it all starts with stomach acid and salivation. And so it affects that entire downstream process. When it comes to the weight loss medications that are really popular right now, like the GLP-1 medications, these are typically used for, you know, type two diabetes, but essentially these drugs, what they do is they mimic the action of a hormone that's actually naturally produced in our intestines. And this hormone 
it helps with satiety and it helps with fullness. And so these drugs will impact the gut because they're Mm -hmm. essentially acting on the mechanism that is produced in the gut. You know, people will see better like glycemic control, you know, if they have diabetes and they're taking this drug, it's going to help regulate blood sugar levels, but they also will have an impact on other gut peptides. So they actually can slow gastric emptying, which we don't want. We don't want to slow down gastric emptying if it already is slow, because if your stomach is full all the time and it's not emptying its contents into the small intestine, this is going to delay the absorption of nutrients, especially carbohydrates. And then consequently it can lead to other downstream digestive issues like dysbiosis, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, et cetera. Um, so that's very, very brief overview, but mm-hmm. you know, like I said earlier, it, like nothing works in isolation. And so it's kind of like, we're fixing one thing maybe or helping one thing and potentially causing some other problems. That being said, I definitely think there's a time and a place, you know, for those, especially if someone does have uncontrolled blood sugar and diabetes. It sounds like you're probably of a similar mindset and on this podcast, we're all about like autonomy and like looking at pros and cons, what we do and what we don't know. And yeah, I guess my question is for people that let's say they've had weight loss surgery and they want to improve their gut health. They want to look for assistance with like things like dysbiosis. Obviously there, especially with the bypass where there's even more anatomy changed and more intestines bypass, but with the sleep too, anatomy has changed can they do similar things to address dysbiosis as someone who doesn't have surgery? Is it vastly different? I even had someone the other day that was saying like they're post-surgery and they, they just took a, like an antiviral med to address like some symptoms that they've had before surgery. And they're just noticing, like, it's just really causing a lot of water retention and they're having a hard time getting their surgical team to address it adequately. So I guess that's two questions in one. And I know it probably isn't a simple answer, but a lot of the stuff we're talking about here, does it still apply to them? I guess is sort of my question. Yeah, it definitely does. And just to kind of break down the process of kind of how I think about like approaching digestive health so that everyone listening can understand is Mm -hmm. I really think of it in three steps. So like first step is we have to understand what's causing the issue. And so with someone, you know, that has weight loss surgery as a part of their history, that could be part of what I would consider root causes, Mm -hmm. you know? So when our team is doing an assessment on someone and we're looking at past medical history, we're really taking like an inventory of birth until now, what are all the things that potentially triggered all these symptoms? Maybe you had chronic antibiotic use as a kid because of ear infections, or maybe you had a head injury, or maybe you had weight loss surgery, whatever it is. We're looking at all of that because since digestion works together and nothing works in isolation, we really have to go in order of mechanism versus just like throwing probiotics at the gut. We can't throw probiotics at the gut or even prebiotics or foods at the gut until we know that someone is salivating, which that can be a big one, making sure that they're producing enough stomach acid, making sure that they have adequate bile flow. I know you mentioned dry skin earlier, and that's something that like I immediately think of pancreatic enzyme, making sure they have adequate brush border enzymes in their small intestine. So related to weight loss surgery, 
we want to look at stomach acid secretion um, because that's something that can be altered, but you also wouldn't approach it the same as somebody who hasn't had weight loss surgery. And that's really step two. Okay. So step one, let's identify all the things. Step two Mm -hmm. is all right. Now, how are we going to address this via diet, via lifestyle, via supplementation? We are a fan of the combo of all three, because again, nothing works in isolation and nutrition alone typically is not going to fix digestive issues. Unfortunately, we're going to need some help usually. And so, you know, where someone who has low stomach acid may benefit from like hydrochloric acid, I wouldn't give that to someone who'd had weight loss surgery. And I also wouldn't give that to someone who I didn't know for sure they didn't have H pylori. And so if you're listening to this, don't go buy hydrochloric acid and just try it because there can be a lot of side effects of taking something like that. If you have other things going on. And the other piece too, is with kind of this intervention phase, step two is your prebiotic and probiotic recommendations are probably going to be a little bit different as well. And that's, we've had clients with that as part of their history, they're just a lot more sensitive. And so the approach that you're going to take is a bit different. And like typically even the prebiotic fibers that you're going to give someone are going to be different because of the altered anatomy typically and the tolerance there. And so all that to say, yes, Um, A lot of the things we're talking about totally apply the meal hygiene, you know, relaxing before eating, you know, getting a diverse array of foods. Yes, totally applicable, but some of the like complementary things like supplements and like even specific foods that we might use could be a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely helpful. Cause I think my sense is this would apply for anyone dealing with any specific gut related symptom is there are some broad things that are going to apply to most people and that people should feel hopeful that like a lot of times they're not going to get the messages strong enough. So we want to stress, you know, looking at like slowing down your eating and stress and all of those things. And my sense is it's really for most people going to be very helpful to find somebody who can guide them. I mean, maybe some people can figure out their own root causes, but I think that's challenging without that training that an expertise that you bring. And that's what is missing so often from the medical standard medical world, because they're just not trained in it. And that's what this mm-hmm. person I'm thinking, she's just like, well, change your eating. And she's like, first of all, there's not much to change. Yeah. Yeah. It's like these standard guidelines versus like, what is the root cause here? And me, it sounded like the root cause specifically was this med and well and I mean that's like very typical of our medical system right it's like you have this symptom here's the thing to like fix the symptom but they're not doing kind of what I described in step one like we're not looking at like what are all the things that are impacting this that like led us yeah. to get to this point we live in an Amazon prime culture everyone wants the package to show up on their doorstep in a day And that's what they're expecting. But when you're really looking at like a root cause approach, it does take time. That doesn't mean you're not going to feel better for a long time, but it does take time. But it also allows you to get to step three, which is like, now, you know, your root causes and you've addressed them. So now we can find long-term relief. Here's the things we need to do long-term, you know, to prevent you from getting back to where you were. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone's considering either weight loss or or the meds, just like really considering trying to find out as much as you can about how that might influence your gut and just weighing that into the pros and cons too. 
Yeah. And, you know, if you're having the GI side effects that go along with it, there's things you can do about that too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you can work with someone and Mm -hmm. they can help you with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, in a long, and this is sort of me, this is me asking a question that's relevant to me, but I think it will be relevant to a lot of other people too, (laughs) with regards to root causes. So for years I have, I've had kind of some dry skin much of my life. Honestly, I didn't have eczema, but both my kids had eczema and like, they're just like, here's your hydrocortisone cream, which Mm -hmm. short term works for both my kids. And I did ask the doctor a long time ago, like, should we look at try to look at patterns with foods. And she said, she was like, you could, but it might make you a little bit crazy because it's hard to do. So anyway, we, we kind of left it. And more recently for other things going on, we've decided to do food sensitivity testing for my son currently in the two week wait period. So I already poked him and got a blood sample, but what are your thoughts about things like food sensitivity testing or trying to look at gut health? So there's two ways that you can approach things like that. And actually on the topic of eczema, you'll have to go check out my blog from this week. It's literally on the gut skin connection. And we have a testimonial in there from a client who had really severe eczema and it completely cleared in the six months of working with us, which was pretty amazing. We have like before and after pictures, like her story is just really, really cool. And it would always flare in the winter. She sent us a picture this January and she's like, look, my skin is so clear. I don't have any eczema, which was like, just so amazing. So there's two ways you can approach it. One is okay. Food can be a symptom. So we can do food sensitivity testing and look at the symptom or we can look at the root cause, which would be in the gut. So Mm -hmm. the way that we typically like to approach it is let's do a stool test. Let's see, like, do you have dysbiosis? Are you actually digesting foods? Well, what does your gut immune system look like? Which is a big one for a lot of inflammatory conditions. You know, do you have H pylori? Is there a parasite? Whatever it is. And so like food sensitivity testing, I would kind of put in the same bucket as like, take Miralax for your constipation, Mm -hmm. although it might relieve the symptoms, you're not necessarily answering the question, why is the body reacting to the food? And so if you take it a step further and you do stool testing and you can look at what is going on in the immune system, there's a really cool marker on the GI map. Like I mentioned that looks at that it's called secretory IgA. And essentially secretory IgA is kind of like the bouncer at the bar. Like it's going to make sure that the bad guys stay out and it's going to keep everybody else safe. And so when you eat food, IgA coats those food peptides and tells your immune system, we're good. We're safe. Don't cause a reaction. We're not kicking anybody out of this bar. But when you have low levels of IgA, the bar's going crazy. There's people dancing on the tables and, you know, throwing drinks at everybody and whatever else happens. And so IGA can be a huge driver of why someone might have food sensitivities. So what we will see in a lot of our clients who have tried to address their digestive issues is they have done food sensitivity testing and they're like, it was fine. You know, I did the test, but it was like every food that I ate every single day. And, you know, then I felt really discouraged because I couldn't eat anything that I wanted to. And all that's really showing is there's a gut immune response going on. And Mm -hmm. 
the reason that typically the foods you eat every day show up is because your immune system is exposed to those food proteins. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's normal. Like that's, that would be expected. So Mm -hmm. really like that can be an approach, but the like more long-term approach would be looking at the gut. Looking at and healing up the actual immune Mm-hmm. function like what is the actual true root cause oh that's really interesting and that does make sense I finally decided to do it because I know well that's even more reason to not freak out if it's all red mm-hmm. like it's more reason to not worry well I'll still need to address it right and I was at a place where I was like okay I think I'm not going to I'm not going to feel like I need to be restrictive that's just not something I I already know I'm not going to be doing that with myself or my family but the way I thought of it is like, maybe if he was sensitive to a bunch of things, we might temporarily reduce it just to help the immune response go down. But like you're saying, it's not actually, if you don't figure out why that response is happening, it's not really going to solve anything. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And then what can happen is like, you repeat the food sensitivity testing later, and then now you have different ones, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like, it kind of can be a vicious cycle um, for a lot of people. Okay. So the more root cause would be getting more curious. What are some potential, like just examples of what might be a solution for that more root cause? Yeah, it really depends. So like if the IgA is low, there's lots of things. There's certain probiotic strains that can be helpful for that. There's immunoglobulins that can be helpful for that vitamin a, um, but it also kind of depends on the whole picture. You know, if someone's IgA level is low and they also have really low levels of beneficial bacteria, you're going to approach it a lot differently than if their IgA levels are low and they have a bunch of overgrowth bacteria. So in that case, you're probably going to want to go after the overgrowth and support the immune system versus rebuilding the beneficial and going after the immune system. So basically you need someone with with your knowledge to help guide you essentially, right? Yeah. You look at the test and you're like, is this in another language? I mean, Mm -hmm. our clients are like, I hope I'm not supposed to figure this out on my own. I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. that's why you're in our program. You know, we're not going to just hand you the test and be like, figure it out. But you know, even the dietitians that I mentor are like, what is, I have no idea what any of this means. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just, and even GI doctors, you'll send the test to a GI doctor and they're like, ah, it's nothing, you know, <laughs> which I mean, part of that is they just weren't taught that in school and they don't really have the time, honestly, to, to learn about that, which is understandable. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically I have to join your program, which is totally fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm down. I got to learn. You have to join my program, but you know, when the food sensitivity comes back, like basically if there's a lot of food sensitivities on there, it's just showing you there's a gut issue. Let's mm-hmm. address it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. I'm just glad there's people like you that are looking into these things. It's good. <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, it's a very good thing. Yeah. So, and this is kind of a little bit along this line, but I wonder if you could speak to this idea of like, how can we focus on our gut health without being too rigid or too obsessive about perfect gut? <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, it could be called like orthorexia in general, but I've kind of been occasionally I don't have a disorder relationship with food or body anymore, but I have occasionally been like, I gotta, like, even with the stuff with my son, I'm like, I gotta fix it all. And I'm in a better place. But I wonder if you could speak to that because I I imagine that's not particularly helpful for her gut health. 
No, I mean, the biggest thing is reducing stress. So if that's stress around food, we want to work on food relationship. If it's stress around symptoms, we definitely want to work on just reducing stress, you know, when the symptoms arise to allow the body to get more into a rest and digest. Um, but also kind of reframing the, like, I have to do these things or I can't do these things to like, I get to support my gut in these ways. You know, some of the more simple things that you can do chewing your food, like chew your food to applesauce consistency. No one is going to not benefit from that. Um, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. how our bodies are designed. That's why we have teeth. We're supposed to manually break down our food. Another one is getting good sleep. Like, I know you have young kids. I do too. Some nights are better than others, but you know, trying to get eight hours of sleep if you can. Um, and if you're in a season where you just can't because you have a newborn or whatever, your gut health isn't going to be destroyed. It's not like, Oh, well I give up. I can't do anything. Try to just get quality sleep in the hours that you can get sleep. So avoid being on screens, you know, wear your blue light glasses, do everything you can to optimize even the small windows of sleep that you get drinking water. Uh, Water helps to move our bowels. So water, you know, preferably with minerals, I'm a huge fan of adding minerals to water. Um, Especially if you drink filtered water can help just replace some of the minerals that were filtered out. And then lastly, from a food standpoint, again, going back to this, like, let's focus on what we can add versus what we need to cut out. The largest research study that we have to date on gut health shows us that the wider variety of foods we can eat, the more diverse our bacteria are. And so what they were studying was 30 plants a week. And that sounds like a lot, but it's not because plants would include fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, herbs, spices. So it's not just Mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables. You think about making spaghetti sauce. It's like, okay, you've got tomatoes you can throw in some oregano, parsley, you know, um, shredded zucchini, mushrooms, onion, garlic, you've already got seven and that's in one meal. So, yeah. So think about Mm -hmm. what can you add to your plate to get to that 30 plants a week and go slow. If you eat three plants a week right now, eat four next week and then eat five the week after and just work it up. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's something I've said for a while without necessarily I mean, I was sort of aware of gut health, but it's like mentally that feels better to us, right? Like we like having choices and we like adding stuff in. None of us like feeling restricted or controlled. And I think that's the cool thing about, I'm just reflecting as you're talking, like so much of this advice that you're saying, yes, there's some complicated pieces of the specific gut health piece that you might need some guidance, but there's so much of it that isn't complicated and that can reduce stress and people can start with. And, and again, I guess I'm just sort of, well, that's kind of what we do on this podcast is bash diet culture, but it's like, we're being sold so much of it being complicated, but there's a lot of it that like, you don't have to go through like your potential client did and have all those food lists and get all stressed. It can, there can be some simplicity and some ease that can be part of this journey too, which is I think hopeful. And, you know, if you're addressing the basics, like the things that I just mentioned and you're not seeing any relief, like you're still really bloated, you're still really constipated. There are more advanced things that you can do, but I always like to start with those because like I said, no one's going to go wrong chewing their food, drinking more water, getting sleep. Like that's going to be helpful overall. And then Mm -hmm. there are more, you know, testing and all the like more sexy stuff that we can get into, but you Mm -hmm. don't really want to do that until you've done the basics anyways. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives hope. I think that's where I'm kind of at. I'm like, I think we've done pretty good with the basics and I still have like a very itchy scalp. So it's like, yeah. okay, there's hope, right? Like it's it's a nice message because I think even a handful of years ago, I wouldn't have had a lot of options uh, for someone to guide me. It would have been like, oh, deal with it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, you already gave some simple things that people can do to improve gut health. I don't know if there's any to that you want to add, just like quick things they could do to improve their gut health today. You said chewing, water. Yeah, chewing, sleeping water, maybe yeah. add a fermented food in here and there, some mm-hmm. kimchi, sauerkraut, you know, yogurt, kefir, if you like those things. Yeah. I just started pickling um, carrots and my daughter actually Ooh. loves it. Just like uh, salt and water in a, yeah. in a mason jar in your fridge. It's easy. And I'm still learning to like the taste, but my daughter is like, can you make some of those sweet carrots for me again? I'm like, sure. <laughs> yeah. It'd be super simple. I love it. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to ask our motivation questions at the end here. So what is one thing that you have truly intrinsic motivation for? You do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior itself. So you enjoy it or find it challenging or satisfying in its own right. Oh man. Honestly, probably when I get good sleep, like when Mm. I actually go to bed early and sleep really well, like it is challenging to like get myself to go to sleep. I can come up with a hundred things that I want to be doing instead of getting in bed early, but the satisfaction I feel the next morning is like, okay, this was worth it. I feel better. I have more energy. My gut feels better. You know, it's overall just beneficial. Yes. Like a well-rested waking is like the actual reward of, yeah. Well-rested. And I don't know if you're a coffee person. I love coffee. I'm just like, I actually gave it up, but I put it back in. I'm like, (laughs) I know I can never give up coffee. People always ask if I join your program, are you going to make me stop drinking coffee? I'm like, I would never (laughs) tell you to do anything that I wouldn't do. And I'm not going (laughs) to do that. So, so no, (laughs) no, I might suggest like half calf or decaf at some point. Yeah. But like, if you truly just love coffee for the taste, I'm not going to take it away from oh, you. I love it so much. Yes. I gave it up for a month, which was very challenging in March to get rid of my acid reflux and it did help. And now I have it again and it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so next questions are from a should to a choose to integrated motivation is technically the type of motivation. So what's an example of behavior that used to be a should for you that you struggled to do, but you have now figured out a way to do it more consistently Uh, Maybe because you value it as part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. Ooh, this one, I would say exercise. I used to feel like I had to exercise. Um, And probably part of that was growing up just being an athlete my entire life and through college, like it was just part of my identity. Like, no, I wake up at 4 a.m. and I have some practice at 4.45 a.m. before school starts. Like that was just literally my life until I was like 20 something years old. And so or 20 years old. So I, I really struggled after I was like no longer an athlete to like figure out, okay, I feel like this is something I have to do, but I'm not necessarily loving it. And, you know, several years ago, I finally realized, like, I think I'm doing stuff that I don't actually like. I'm doing it because I think I have to. And now Mm -hmm. I've actually found that I, I really love Pilates and I really love walking and I still love swimming, of course, but I've just found that I love it in a much different way. And like, 
I'm not wearing a timer. I'm not wearing, you know, I'm not like doing it for like the achievement more just for like how I feel afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So often when it's, yeah, you're an athlete or even like someone they like trained for a race and the race is over. It's like, wait, this external motivation is gone. So now, now what, but yeah, can yeah. allow you to explore like, what do I actually like? Yeah. I mm-hmm. love that. All right. And then a main part of our mission here at the Psychology of Wellness and on this podcast is teaching women to reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live more courageous and connected lives. Can you share an example or two where you've been more courageous or more connected in a way that you're proud of? Mm, I would say in entrepreneurship, obviously no one here that I know of knew me as a child or as even a teenager, but I was very shy. Like I was always kind of the quiet kid and just kind of stayed in the background. And I grew up in Southern California. And when I decided that I wanted to swim in college, one of the schools that I was looking at was in Texas. And I remember like multiple people going up to my mom, like you can't send her to Texas. She will not survive. Like she, she won't be able to do it. And I did, I moved to Texas and I knew nobody. And that was kind of the start of this. I ended up actually being president of my sorority, which is like a very random fact about me and something that I'm slightly embarrassed about, but, um, (laughs) you know, that kind of started this cascade of like, maybe I do have a voice and maybe I'm like a stronger human than I think that I am. And especially now just like paving my own path of entrepreneurship. It's something I've realized I held myself back for so many years being afraid of like, what will people think of me? Or what if I say the wrong thing? And then realized, you know what, when I don't share things like this that are going to help people, it's actually a disservice. And so Mm -hmm. that's definitely something I'm proud of. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, I've said at the beginning, I'm a big fan of what you're doing because it, I can tell you're very grounded in what works, but also grounded in evidence. Yeah. Nothing wrong with you continuing to do a one-on-one practice, but it wouldn't impact as many people. And that it's courageous and brave because you have to be vulnerable. And so I very much appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that too. Yeah. So tell people where they can learn more about the work you're doing and connect with you and kind of, you have a couple offerings. So so feel free to share what you have. Yeah. So the first way I think that everyone would have fun connecting with me is I have a quiz and it's super fun. So it will actually tell you why you're bloated tell you why you have digestive issues, but the title of it is which popular song describes your digestive issues. And so (laughs) it'll classify you. Like you mentioned acid reflux earlier, there's like a song for that. You know, there's a song for slow gut motility. There's a song for, um, all the things. So you can take the quiz. It's just drheatherfinley.co backslash quiz. I can send you the link for the show notes. So Mm -hmm. go take the quiz. You'll, after you take the quiz, there's a video explaining your results and it'll actually give you just some action steps and send you, um, a blog article that's relevant to your results as well as, um, some other resources podcast episodes and stuff. So if you really want to learn about what's going on with your digestion, that is where I'd start. It will give you a lot of information. Um, if you want to come say hi on Instagram, I'm at Dr. Heather Finley. And if you want to learn more about the gut together program, um, or our membership, you can go to guttogetherprogram.com. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for being here, Heather. This was fun, informative, and I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.
And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please review from my mom's podcast. Make something from my mom's podcast, please. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.